Hi, this is Marta from Bloomington, Indiana. Dusted is a StoryWonk podcast. To show your support and for exclusive content, visit patreon.com slash storywonk. Thanks. everyone, and welcome to the show. I'm Alistair Stevens. And I'm Lonnie Diane Rich, and this is Dusted, your If You Don't Have Anything Nice to Say, Talk About Catherine Joustin, Buffy the Vampire Slayer podcast. <laughs> now, ordinarily, I would agree with you on this, as I do with regard to all things. <laughs> but in this particular instance, with regard to this particular episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, I'm not sure I even have anything good to say about Catherine Joustin. Well, here's the thing. Um, ordinarily, in every other circumstance, I have wonderful things to say about Catherine Joustin. Those of you who do not remember her as Mrs. Landingham in The West Wing might remember her as Mrs. McCluskey from Desperate Housewives. She was wonderful in both uh, situations. And uh, this, unfortunately, is a tragic tragic waste of her talents tragic bordering on the criminal yes yes. but we'll talk about that (laughs) in a little while (laughs) this week on dusted the first of our two episodes of buffy this week where the wild things are the 18th episode of season four of buffy the vampire slayer lonnie tell us a little about this episode before we get into our breakdown (laughs) the original air date april 25th 2000 so this is as we are Moving into May sweeps, but not quite there yet. Um, this was written by Tracy Forbes, who has had a somewhat uneven history with us in Buffy the Vampire Slayer. She wrote Beer Bad earlier mm-hmm. in this season, which is pretty much right down at the bottom of our it's, list it's of terrible, terrible, terrible episodes of Buffy. Uh, she also wrote Something Blue, which is one of my favorite episodes of Buffy Ever. Uh, Where the Wild Things Are is her last of three that she will do. She will disappear from the Buffy universe, not to be heard from again. Um, and, uh, and I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. I think an opportunity for her to, to kind of come back swinging and give us another something blue would have been fun. Um, it, this was directed by David Solomon. This is the fifth of 19 episodes that he will do for us. Uh, he did What's My Line Part One. He did The Prom. He did Beer Bad. So he was, you know, matched mm-hmm. up with Tracy Forbes once before and goodbye Iowa before this one where the wild things are so as a director I mean I think he's done fairly well we're kind of approaching this with heavy hearts though because this is famously not a great episode of Buffy (laughs) this is another one of those landmark season four episodes where Buffy fans generally just put their heads in their hands and wait for it to be over (laughs) what I will say though this episode much like beer bad Mm -hmm. is directed really rather well it is absolutely it's a good looking episode yeah the visual work is terrific there are mm-hmm. some effects in particular sure. that are just knockout and some great performances mm-hmm. some great moments of comic timing there are some good moments the story is what breaks this episode yeah. for me let's get to it previously on buffy the vampire slayer Anya and Xander, Tara and Willow, Buffy and Riley. We begin for the second episode in a row. We were so distracted by talking about Jonathan at the top of last week's show that we didn't even mention that we begin in a graveyard. We begin in a graveyard. This week, two in a row, we begin in a graveyard. (laughs) Buffy and Riley are battling a vampire and a blue demon who I like to believe, much like Buffy and Riley, Mm -hmm. are just a pair of mismatched lovers trying to find their way in the world. Oh, that's such a sad story. I don't think they have anything to do with Adam, and the show apparently doesn't think they have anything to do with Adam either. Romeo and Juliet of the Demon (laughs) Road. Sure. That's it. Yes. Two strains of demons alike in dignity. Star-crossed demons. (laughs) Buffy kills said demon. We'll call him Juliet. Riley kills the vampire, but the older Buffy gets, the more she's proving Faith right about the connection between slaying and sexing. From there, we cut to the credits, which feel a little hollow, feel a little empty, feel a little sad without all that extra Jonathan. I know. I love the Buffy credits, but (laughs) after you've seen Superstar. (sighs) Once Jonathan, oh, post-Jonathan is Awesome World, is just not as happy as the Jonathan is Awesome World. That night, Riley's frat house is silent, and we get a creepy tracking shot through the interior. And when I said that this episode is beautifully directed, this is the kind of thing that I'm talking about. We get this lovely, long tracking shot that doesn't just establish tone, that doesn't just make us feel uncomfortable, but also introduces us to this space that we don't know terribly well, Mm -hmm. but we'll need to know later in the episode. I think it's a great episode introduction. Yeah. 
Riley wakes and slips out of bed, leaving Buffy behind. He should know that she's sensitive about that, but whatever. (laughs) He hears a sound in the hallway, but it turns out, after some spooky sound effects and camera work, to be nothing more than a dripping faucet in the bathroom. Speaking of creepy sound effects, we cut to the next day where Xander is driving an ice cream truck, trying to reassure Anya that the initiative man... I love Anya's pronunciation of initiative man. (laughs) That is my favorite thing. That the initiative men don't know and don't care that she's an ex-demon. They're going through a 24-hour dry spell, and Anya is convinced that Xander has grown weary of her charms. He tries to prove otherwise with a grand, romantic, sweaty gesture that, predictably, doesn't go down well with the audience of kids and parents outside the truck. We are getting perilously close to actually codifying and making explicit in the text the lack of peripheral vision (laughs) (laughs) from people who live in Sunnydale. Also, is this not the most tired joke in the world where somebody says something loudly and then turns around to find out that absolutely everybody... All we need is a record scratch and then some crickets. (laughs) Oh, and a dog wearing sunglasses. Exactly. (laughs) You're right. But, you know, on the other hand, at least the scene takes forever. Oh, sure. No, there is that. Yeah. This is not the Anya that I like. And I'm exploring this mostly Mm -hmm. as a way of understanding what the difference is between the Anya that I like and the Anya that I don't. And we get great examples of both in this episode. we do. It comes down to this. I do not like bleep bloop, I'm from another world Anya. I do not like the Anya that, what are these human customs called relationships? Mm -hmm. That just doesn't interest me because that's such a boring and predictable and trite path to walk anyway. Yeah. Particularly when you pair her with someone as poorly experienced in that regard as Xander. Yeah. But when Anya is perceptive and capable and complicated, she's great. Here's the thing. You know, this whole revelation that we had about how Riley diminishes who Buffy is, that Buffy becomes worse when she's with Riley. I see the same thing in Anya. Um, I love the Anya who, in the middle of a Scooby meeting, says, oh, no, that's a so-and-so demon. I once cursed one and blah, 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 blah. And here is the answer. I like her experience. I like her knowledge. I like the way that she steps in. I like the fact that she has sort of a Cordelian aspect to her in that a lot of times when people are not saying what they really mean, Anya will step in and say, hey, this is what's actually going on here. That is maybe my favorite thing about Anya. Exactly. I like that she fills that Cordelian space very Mm. nicely. Um, But my problem is when she is obsessed with Xander and their sex and, you know, how much he loves her and she becomes this kind of needy sort of cliched little girl. I don't like that. I think it I think Xander diminishes Anya. I think you're right, though. Obviously, Anya has less far to fall than Buffy does when she's Mm -hmm. in a similarly destructive relationship. I think what bugs me most about it is simply that it's inconsistent. Mm hmm. Anya is not an alien. She is not a robot. Mm -hmm. She knows about relationships. In fact, arguably her entire deal is that she knows about relationships. Right, and a thousand years of, you know, doing vengeance for for human women, not demon women. She is out there, you know, wreaking the vengeance for human women, watching human women in relationships, talking to these women as they're coming out of these relationships, and as they've been wronged. She would get some perception on human nature at that absolutely point. Absolutely right. And yeah. lest we forget, though the show often seems to forget, Anya isn't a demon demon. Mm-hmm. She was a human girl. She was a human first. Right. She was turned demon by de Hoffren. So yeah. that's the least interesting version of mm-hmm. Anya. I love Anya as the somewhat cynical, yes. been around the block, mm-hmm. has seen all this before, but is still naive in her hope that right. she still wants in the face of all the failed relationships she's seen through the ages. And I do like that she's invested in a relationship, you know, even yeah. with everything she's seen, that she does like that have that Xander, hope. That I like that it's Xander, Xander too. I don't like the way, like, I, I love that idea. I love that concept that here is this woman who has been wreaking vengeance for thousands of years, who comes into this space and the one thing, falls in love. The one thing that this person would never want to do. I want to see her resisting that relationship rather than being this 
weird, needy, can't understand human emotions. I understand that there are some things culturally that she doesn't have time for, that she has no patience for, that there are politenesses and that kind of thing. I like that Anya. But you're right. right. This Anya is not... Cultural specifics that she wouldn't necessarily be aware of. That she may not be... the basics of human relationships and interactions. Sure. Or just just stuff that she's tired of. That when you've been around a thousand years, you get tired of being polite to people. Sure. Like, I can certainly understand that. So there are certain writers I think who do Anya really really well and get a lot closer to kind of that vision and that's the one that I love but you're absolutely right the more we go through this the more I see the Anya that you hate very clearly and I completely understand who I'm going to call from now on bleep bloop Anya sure BB Anya like BB-8 only not quite as adorable as BB-8 maybe even better does she do a little (laughs) thumbs up with a cigarette lighter because that would be pretty good I would love to see that yes (laughs) so what do we think Anya aside what do we think of this as the opening of our B plot through this episode um insufficient conflict yeah yeah well it's it's you know we haven't had sex for an evening so obviously we're going to break up you know um that's kind of a ridiculous thing her whole paranoia about it is somewhat ridiculous Xander's response to it is you know I mean he's he's kind of cute and befuddled but the idea that he's like oh no let's have sex right now and then there are children watching like that just is not something it's not a funny joke it's an old 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 joke it Mm. creaks on the screen um and you know and it doesn't really earn its space i don't think that xander would say that to her whether the children were watching or not again yeah xander is better when he is Mm -hmm. smart he's better when he is a little more Mm -hmm. sophisticated than this but this is this is kind of a leaden scene and i think honestly it really does set things off on the bad foot uh yeah because the cold open Mm -hmm. it's not fantastic perhaps but it's pretty solid i mean buffy and riley fight they overcome the demon and the vampire they are overwhelmed by their sexual urges sure (laughs) and then we cut to the credits and when we come out of credits we're doing this we're doing this thing yeah not a great way to start your episode And, and and i'm sorry but no matter how good a director you are if you're shooting inside of an ice cream truck it just yeah. looks terrible. You're right. You know, it's it's it doesn't have, you know, in a small space, sometimes you can have a nice sense of claustrophobia. But this is just, it feels like Xander's basement, which is it, terrible. Yeah, it's you know? grimy and it's, yeah you're, yeah, you're absolutely right. Giles, meanwhile, is having trouble wrapping his head around the idea that a vampire and a demon could work together. We get the fantastic Martin Luther King line yes. from Willow because it turns out there's a good chance that it might be Adam uniting the demon races. Yes. So obviously they'll need to step up their patrols and pay attention, but only after they're finished partying. Buffy and Riley make their awkward excuses off to squeeze in a quickie before Buffy's next class. In the dorm house, much later, they're still having sex as Forrest and Graham complain about the broken furnace and Forrest's eternal and unyielding jealousy of anyone in Riley's bed who isn't him. <laughs> Speaking of things that are rapidly becoming actual text in the episode. Yes. There's no way of reading this episode. There's no way of reading Forrest's response other than to infer jealousy, right? I don't, I don't believe that that is actually what was intended. I don't believe that they intended because they never actually acknowledge it textually. So for me, it feels like people not realizing what it looks like. Like they just want to create this conflict between Forrest that Forrest does not like Buffy, you know? Um, But it does, it does read as jealousy. And this may be something that the actor Leonard Roberts just kind of brought to the role, (laughs) which is an interesting way to go. Sure. Have a good time. Um, But yeah, it, it is, it's weird and it feels very much like jealousy. And even the, the actor playing um, Graham Bailey chase, Mm -hmm. you can see the look in his eyes where he's like, dude, just kiss him, get it over with. You know, he's just got this look on, on his face you know like even he picks it up you know let's talk though about maybe the greatest strength of this episode mm-hmm. because there are individual fragmented moments yes. scattered throughout this mm-hmm. episode beginning to end which are genuinely great mm-hmm. i think genuinely great lines genuinely great performances i do adore the cutaway to willow's martin luther king joke yes. i think that's fantastic that is very cute there is an extra line to that exchange in the script that mm-hmm. was cut in the edit, which I think is a genius move because mm-hmm. having that line just hang in the air while we get the look on Giles's face, yes. the look on Willow's face, and then we return to business without mm-hmm. another word being said. That is perfect, and I love it. Perhaps, though, the greatest 
broad, general, thematic strength of this episode Mm -hmm. is a really admirable streak of sex positivity. No, absolutely. And I I definitely think that that is a a positive kind of thematic place to come from in that we are not shaming anybody for their sexual activity. Particularly in the year 2000. And when we say shaming anybody, what we really mean is shaming Buffy. Uh, Yeah, well, the women, yes. Mm -hmm. But we're really positive on the fact that Buffy and Riley have this, at least in the opening act, this active and positive sex life, and Mm -hmm. no one is looking down on her for that. Well, except Forrest, but that's not about slut But it's not about sex, absolutely. And I think that even in his, (laughs) even if you read the strict text of his criticisms, it's not targeted at Buffy. (laughs) Right, yes, exactly. It's Riley being with anybody else. Just having the worst time. So we cut back and forth from Buffy and Riley to the freezing living room where the fire crackles and then suddenly blazes, engulfing one poor initiativeman in flames. Mm Outside the bronze, Spike frightens Anya, then tries to intimidate her into parting with her money, but that's not how Anya do. Spike notices that Xander is unusually absent, and we cut from there to the party where Riley is distracted from the weird supernatural occurrence that burned off Mason's eyebrows, dude, this is pretty much your job, (laughs) by Buffy's cute smile and the tidal wave of his raging hormones. Xander is catching Willow and Tara up on the most recent embarrassment with Anya, while Buffy is zoned out. We cut from there back to Anya and Spike in the bronze, reminiscing about the time when they were serious business. Oh, I love this. They don't technically need their former badass powers to take vengeance on Xander and Drusilla, but, well, maybe some other time. (laughs) Both Anya and Spike scenes. Yes, are just brilliant. They're fantastic. They're and Anya and brilliant. Spike work so nicely together. This is great, Anya. Yeah. Because she's not being immediately dominated by <laughs> Xander in the exactly, scene. Exactly, yeah. We get this really interesting take on two fractured people mm-hmm. who happen to be bound by love. And we get, I think, at least implicit confirmation in this scene that Spike is, in fact, still in love with Drusilla. Yeah, yeah. After all that's happened, we've gone, I don't know, a season, I guess, mm-hmm. since that rolled out first. But here he is. He's still caught in those shackles. Yeah. Well, I mean, she is so significant. He was with her for like 100 years. Sure. I mean, that's a that's a big deal, you know. And it takes time to get over that. They say it takes half the time that you're with somebody to get over them. So he's got another 49 <laughs> years to go. Um, but I do. I, I don't like... think that he does. <laughs> I think perhaps not, but we'll deal with that later. Um, But I like this moment with the two of them. We have them bonding over who they used to be and trying to figure out what their roles are now that they're just different. Sure. You know, and I think it's it's a really nice moment and something that I would love to have seen really be part of a story. Instead, it's how we happen to spend these 45 seconds, but it's not, you know, it doesn't really move the story forward. This is something, honestly, that's probably one of the best parts of this episode and has bugger all to do with anything. Yes, it would be tough looking at this episode structurally, mm-hmm. not to argue in favor of cutting both beats. Yeah. Because Spike, much as we adore him, serves no useful purpose in this story whatsoever. No, absolutely. And it only gets worse as he goes. So This is yeah. pretty much it. This mm-hmm. the, the scene where he's in the bronze talking with Anya is yes. pretty much the last time he even exerts any real influence. Mm-hmm. That's not to say that he doesn't have a couple of genuinely great lines later in the episode. Sure, sure he does, yeah. But he is irrelevant to the proceedings. You could lift him right out of the story and it makes absolutely no difference. It just gave James Marshers a reason to come in and pick up a check that week, which, by the way, was well-earned. Yeah. I mean, he did a great job, but he I don't think that did. they utilized him well in this episode either. You're right, because there's nothing in this episode that speaks thematically to these characters having vulnerability foisted upon them. Yes. You know, mm-hmm. kind of being vulnerable against their will. That's mm-hmm. such an interesting thing to do to a character. No. It's such a great reason to make characters like Anya, like Mm -hmm. Spike, fall in love. And it's a great reason for them to bond together, you know? And I like the way that he respects her when they have that discussion. They understand each other. It's Mm. a really, really nice moment. But as far as the story goes, it has nothing. It has no weight. I'd rather, though take that and use it as the core use that of a as the new core episode. for an entire episode no absolutely have spike <laughs> and anya working together on something that would be fantastic rather than for example cutting back to the party where <laughs> one of the former neanderthals from beer bad is trying to impress a girl with the sensuality of the french language he leans on the wall and boy howdy is he appreciative of fancy wallpaper <laughs> xander meanwhile flirts with a the girl then riley and buffy race upstairs to pick up where they left off Graham jokes that he's the one who cut a D in covert ops. 
Which means that Maggie Walsh, while running her super secret quasi-military special agent spy initiative, Mm -hmm. was grading them with letter grades? Sure. Did she think she was running a kindergarten? Did she tuck them in for nap times with a juice box? Maybe Graham is the kind of student who needs a grade. He needs to understand how bad he is at covert ops. He was given a D. (laughs) He was given a D. Just for asking. Must be quite the rubric. Roy, meanwhile, is showing the sexy wall to everyone who passes by. Willow and Tara are sitting on the stairs talking, and Willow is nervous, we learn, about horses. Willow touches Tara, and Tara freaks out, because Tara is the lightning rod for all things weird. Mm -hmm. She runs off into the bathroom, then Anya and Spike arrive. Anya fills in Spike about the initiative, Spike taunts Xander, and Xander loudly announces the presence of Hostile 17 but no one seems to be paying very much attention. Because they're they're bad at non-covert ops, too, apparently. apparently. All ops. <laughs> All ops. Pretty poor. Covert or otherwise. Well, I do like the... Be- I don't like it so much in its execution, but I like the idea that this party is already slipping away from people, that mm-hmm. it's already turning into something else, yes. and no one has really noticed yet. Mm-hmm. I like the idea that these disconnected events... There are, are being replicated throughout the building. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there are a dozen more that we don't ever see. Right. Mm-hmm. But there's this air of, I don't know, something dark moving just under the surface. And mm-hmm. we're getting these weird little examples of that. So the first is the sexy wall. Sure. Mm-hmm. How do we feel about the sexy wall? The sexy wall is kind of gross. Um, watching all of these guys essentially have an orgasm all in front of each other. It's just weird. Um, and there's something about it, too, that that feels wrong when put up against everything else that's happening. Everything else that's happening in this space is shaming sex. You mm-hmm. know, it's it's about, you know, we, we get, we'll see a little bit later that Julie freaks out. We have a whole bunch of stuff like Tara, when Willow touches her, says, you know, don't touch me, that's disgusting. Um, so we see all of these things. And then for some reason, we have the happy wall. No, I think that we're getting something that's much more conflicted mm-hmm. and much weirder and more engaging to me yeah. for that. Because it's not just the sexy wall, it's also, you know, the group of people compelled to play spin the bottle. Mm-hmm. Which is such a weirdly and creepily middle school thing to do yeah. for this group of college students. Mm-hmm. It's strange. It is yeah. unsettling mm-hmm. in what is, for me, quite an effective way. I think we maybe go to the sexy wall one too many times. Mm-hmm. But I like it as something that is just inexplicable and uncomfortable. Yeah. And you're maybe. right. It is weird. Yeah. But I don't hate that weirdness. Yeah, I that, I don't like that. I don't like the it's happy wall. getting closer to a horror trope than we usually see yeah, from Buffy. Yeah, yeah, I know it is. But that in itself kind of speaks to a wasted opportunity because here we have a bunch of college kids having sex. Mm-hmm. And that invites, that expects a slasher movie structure. No, absolutely. Because that is the one thing that if you have sex, well, if you're a woman and you have sex, you know, and there is a, a horror movie, then you're going to get killed. So, And yeah. we get none of that. The mm-hmm. explanation, <laughs> such as it is, is much more, uh, much more flat, much less judgmental, I guess, positively, but, yeah. but also much less much anything. less interesting because yeah. there's no real impetus behind it. It just sort of happens. Yeah. So we get the beat where Xander flirts first with Julie. How does that work for you? This is Charming Xander. We don't get to see Charming Xander terribly often. I like Charming Xander. I like that, you know, obviously women find him attractive. He's funny, you know. Mm -hmm. So I think that that's a nice little moment. And I I like her. She seems pretty cool. Yeah, I like her too. Mm -hmm. Then we have Willow and Tara on the steps. Right. Mm -hmm. Which is a good scene, but maybe a little unintentionally pointed a little unintentionally heavy-handed and dare i say judgmental well and possibly homophobic i mean there there is an element throughout this whole thing that it's just sex is bad right it doesn't matter whether it's homosexual sex or whether it's whatever but we have this situation with willow and tara where they're in the middle of the beginning of a relationship where they're just starting to kind of get into that space um and then to have tara suddenly say don't touch me that's disgusting disgusting um it feels even though it is affected by the energy in the house which is already affecting so many other people as well it feels a little um it has a lack of insight which we usually associate with tara like tara senses energy like that tara understands these things on a deeper level 
I don't feel like she she might flinch and then say, I'm not sure what's going on. Something's weird. But for her to run off in disgust that, feels like it's not Tara. That is exactly it. Yeah. I was trying to figure out why it didn't feel right to me. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly it. Involving Tara directly, having her be affected by this weird energy in the house directly rather than having her act more as an observer. Yeah. That doesn't work for me. Not least of all, because how many episodes is this now? Mm-hmm. Where we've put Tara in danger, or we've had her be, as I said, you know, the lightning rod for weirdness. Exactly. Something's exactly. going to happen, and it's going to happen to her to motivate the mm-hmm. rest of the characters and to elicit that empathy from the audience. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's not a beat that I'm particularly fond of, I have yeah. to say. And then, of course, we have the arrival of Spike. Mm-hmm. Some good dialogue. It's, he it's doesn't belong cute. at this party. No. There's no reason for him to be here. And there's that moment where he's like, oh, wait, this is the initiative, guys. These are the people. Why did you bring me here? You know, and then we have this, you know, Xander comes in and shouts Hostel 17. And suddenly, because nobody reacted and grabbed him when Xander did that, he decides he's going to go sit by himself next to the keg. He is literally hundreds of years older than any of these people there's no interest to be had here at a kager if he's not going to bite somebody and he's well, not except that the beer is free and as we know spike is apparently having money trouble fair enough but spike would pick up a keg and walk out with it he's very strong that i could believe you know yes picking up the keg and walking out with it that would have been fine use of spike in this but as it is he sits in this chair staring at all of these people doing nothing mm-hmm. not enjoying himself not participating in the story it's a real waste. It is, absolutely. Yeah. Anya and Xander argue over which one of them gets to end their relationship. In the pursuit of fun, Xander finds a group of people playing spin the bottle because this is a college party for middle school kids. And mm-hmm. again, that's another one of these creepy yeah. and kind of non-specific. It's just unsettling. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, there is something not right mm-hmm. about seeing the college kids sitting around playing spin the bottle in sure. this very, very simple and naive kind of way. Mm-hmm. And I like it very much. There is some good tonal work Mm -hmm. throughout this episode. I tend to think that's more a consequence of the direction and the performances rather than it is the writing. Mm -hmm. But all the same. But putting the bottle in this space is is an interesting choice in the writing. Xander joins in and spins the bottle and it lands, of course, on Julie, the girl from earlier. Xander kisses her cheek because he's adorable (laughs) and she pounces on him only to experience immediate regret, stammer an apology and run out of the room. If I had a nickel. (laughs) Xander gives chase and finds a group of people hanging out around the wall of a thousand orgasms while in a locked closet, Julie hacks at her own hair and repeats over and over that she's bad. Upstairs, Willow goes into the bathroom to find Tara, but Tara's not there, which you'd think might be a cause for concern. But Willow certainly pauses long enough to drink some refreshing tap water and then investigate the bathtub where she finds a bound boy underwater. When she reaches for him, he disappears, only to reappear right behind her. So this is our first overtly supernatural occurrence. Yes. How does it work for you? It doesn't. Um, there's something about this that we've had this kind of strange, amorphous, you know, uh, no real entity making anything happen, like stuff happening in the house. We've got the the wall of a thousand orgasms. We've got the crazy, you know, girl in the closet hacking off her hair. Um, that these are influences that are felt. Um, when we see this kid in drowning there, we don't have a sexual context for that at all it's just a kid being drowned in a tub Mm -hmm. everything else in this episode is about sex now we don't want to see obviously kids and sexual activity anyway you know um but there's if there was if she saw a ghost of a girl hacking off her hair if she saw something that that kind of relates to everything else that's going on yeah i think it might make more sense we do get a context for this later but at this moment we don't really have it it doesn't really make sense it's just a ghost it's also kind of insubstantial by the time we get to it yeah. because we have Riley investigating the bathroom in the episode sure. opening mm-hmm. to no consequence whatsoever. Right. We then have Willow going in, not finding Tara, which should be a beat yes. right there. She then goes to the sink and she drinks the water just so we can set up a classic mirror reveal shot, yes. mm-hmm. which we don't do. Right. Then she goes over to the bathtub and we find the bound boy. Mm-hmm. Her reaching for the boy is a nice effect. Yeah. But the reveal when he turns around is 
expected at that point. Right. I think the execution isn't quite what it needs to be, as well as the intention being somewhat wide of the mark, as you said. Well, if she had come in and heard, I'm bad, I'm bad, I'm bad, and then went and pulled the thing, and there's a girl sitting in the tub hacking off her hair, and for a moment, maybe she thinks it's Tara. You know, then at least we could have something that sort of pulls all that together. Good, yeah. You know, yeah. but it feels really kind of out of left field. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And it, thematically, it doesn't speak to everything else that's happening in the house. And we also have to deal with the weird disappearance of Tara. Well, sure, because she just goes to the bathroom and this then... This is just an extra dimensional bathroom. Apparently waits in the very, very long line at the orgasm wall. Apparently. Yeah. You would, though, would you? would. You? Well, certainly. Yes. I mean, come on. <laughs> Riley and Buffy hear Willow's scream but don't care. And that is also an effective moment. Mm-hmm. Hearing Buffy say that it doesn't matter. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's that's strong work because that is really reliant on our understanding of Buffy as a character. Sure. Mm-hmm. And I like that moment. This is the real... I mean, we already sense, of course, that something that they're under profoundly a, weird is influence. going on. Exactly, yes. But mm-hmm. this is the moment where you realize how powerful that force is. And yeah. I thought it worked rather nicely. Downstairs, Xander tries to get the people in the safely heterosexual game of Spin the Bottle to care about Julie. Willow finds him and Tara appears a moment later with no mention of where she's been. She's okay, but she wants to leave. And that's when the spin the bottle bottle spins a little too fast. They run to fetch Buffy, as they should, but vines grow around Riley's bedroom door. And inside, Riley and Buffy are suspended in infinite darkness. That is a great shot. The Mm -hmm. overhead shot that just retreats and retreats and retreats. And shows them getting further and further and further away. I Mm -hmm. really enjoy that. I thought that was great. I mean, they're also... Clearly not having sex. <laughs> no, they're having television sex. <laughs> television sex is people moving underneath a sheet. That's all you need. It doesn't matter if they're moving in any kind of way that is actually sexy. Yes. It manages to communicate the intent. It absolutely though, does. Fairly well. Sure, sure. Let me ask you this. What is the thematic or symbolic source of the vines, of the undergrowth, of this this weird plant life that takes over the Frant house. Okay, I am going to admit right now, I have no idea. Do you know what that speaks to? Does that... It beats me. I mean, if you go back to fairy stories and mythology, there's always a connection between sex and the forest. Sure. You know, the, mm-hmm. the, the darkness of the wood, the wild world and always speaks to sex. That's what right. leads all the way through, you know, Red Riding Hood and mm-hmm. stories of, the, of that sort. The specific application in this story, I have no idea. It's it's just another kind of weird thing that you're sort of trying to figure out what the association is. But we make the case toward the end of the episode that this is about this this punitive Christian, sure, 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 mm-hmm. you know, response to blossoming teenage sexuality. Mm-hmm. It feels a little like this is a wasted opportunity. Mm-hmm. It feels a little like some of the thematic stuff in the episode isn't quite cinched as tight as it should be. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. the vines are, within that context, inexplicable. Mm -hmm. I mean, had it been, you know, I don't want to go too far down, down, you know, a Christian road here, but had it been, for example, thorns? Sure. You could have done something with that. And it's particularly weird when Anya gets pierced in the hand later. Uh Yeah. Where the vine passes through her hand and she is left with, I mean, essentially... Essentially stigmata. Right. right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that feels... Way too purposeful to be inadvertent. Well, especially and yet completely in a, disassociated yeah. from anything else in the episode. Yeah, no, it's weird, and this is the thing. It feels kind of like theme salad. You know, everything's sort of thrown in and chopped up together, but it doesn't all connect. I agree. Yeah. Suddenly, the house begins to shake from an earthquake. Spike observes that things are finally getting fun, and Forrest finds Graham, who begins quoting scripture. Despite Professor Walsh's advice in Hush, they use the elevator and descend to the initiative base. (laughs) The shaking stops just long enough for a ghost to run through Anya and then resumes again. Spike has been bound to his chair but breaks free. By the front door, Xander grabs a nearly bald Julie and rushes her to safety. And let me tell you, as a guy who shaves his head, she got real smooth with that pair of scissors that she She was using. She certainly did. Let's take care of some business first before we move on. Forrest and Graham... Inessential to this episode at the best of times. Yes. Here, we go to all the trouble of having Graham quote scripture. Mm -hmm. They descend in the elevator. They are briefed by the guy who was waiting there and given stern instructions about what to do if containment should be lost. Mm -hmm. And we never see them again in the episode. They play no further part in proceedings 
Why did we see that? No. Well, okay. When I was watching it the first time, we have demons that the cells are unlocking or that the cell mechanism isn't working or whatever. There's something like that. They have to go watch the demons. Go watch the demons. This frat house sits on top of the initiative, which Mm -hmm. is just chock full of demons, just overrunning with demons, right? Oops, all demons. Yeah, exactly. So you would think that bringing them down there, showing us this moment where they are going to watch the demons, that perhaps demons might have something to do with the rest of the episode. They do not. No, this is just conveniently getting away, you know, getting Forrest and Graham off somewhere so that they can't be heroic but if you hadn't included them in the first place you wouldn't, you wouldn't need have to get, to get rid, rid of, of them, them. <laughs> exactly <laughs> which is kind of the spike problem that we're sure, about to get yes. to mm-hmm. all in all it's just an opportunity for forrest and graham to look manly yeah mm-hmm. which you know i'll take that's fine <laughs> outside the front house the scoobies gather themselves xander is ready to go and we get spike's fun piece of misdirection yeah maybe his best line mm-hmm. in an episode that is not short on good lines for spike right mm-hmm this feels like a line that was written for you. <laughs> but in this context, you don't like it. No, I don't. I don't. I don't like... the When Spike gets to the party, he's hanging out at this party for no reason. He has no purpose in the whole thing. Then we have this moment where, you know, we've got to get Buffy. We've got to go back in. Xander, I'm going to go back in. And, and Spike does this whole thing of, oh, yes, no, I'll help you. Because, you know, even though Buffy's tried to kill me a number of times, oh, right. And then walks away, you know. It's cute. With but- his parting line, I wonder if the age house is still open exactly <laughs> but i mean nothing at all wrong with the performance no and nothing wrong right. with the line the scaffolding is itself. a little right we here. put up all this scaffolding so that we can have spike be clever we're spending this time on that which by the way we're a good chunk into this story already <laughs> and we still have no idea what the hell is going on well we should find out what's going on let's do that and that sounds like a job for a former watcher former librarian current coffee shop musical act mm-hmm. one rupert giles in the espresso pump the scoobies marvel at giles's singing and i genuinely laughed out loud when we get giles <laughs> yeah. singing behind blue mm-hmm. eyes which is you know a great and appropriate song that someone like giles sure. would absolutely sing mm-hmm. in a coffee shop like the espresso pump and we get that locked cutaway yes to the scooby standing there and willow with her mouth open yes that is maybe my favorite shot in the entire it would episode. be awesome if they cut it right there right after they cut to everybody staring at giles you have giles singing a little bit you have him seeing them looking a little uncomfortable and then that's it this scene is cute in that moment but then we go through this whole thing where xander is horrified and tara's like oh that's neat and then willow's like oh he's sexy and anya's like yeah and i mean all of that stuff is great (laughs) but it's it's just but we talked about the martin luther king joke at the Mm -hmm. beginning of the episode where less is more yes and i feel like we would have had that same moment Mm -hmm. here it's particularly conspicuous because this is the second episode in a row where we have a musical number that goes on a little too long. Yeah. goes on longer than you would expect. Mm-hmm. And as we said last time when we were discussing Superstar, it's one thing to be a little indulgent with the musical numbers when sure. a member of the cast, the regular cast, is actually performing. Mm-hmm. That's always a fun thing. And Anthony Stewart Head has a great voice. He is. He does fantastic. a great job with yeah. that song. I kind of wish they'd come in when the song gets good mm-hmm. rather than in the relatively mournful yes. opening verses of Behind Blue Eyes. But that, you know, right. your mileage may vary mm-hmm. on that. You're right. It just goes on a little too long. And then we pick up again at the end of the episode. Yeah. Uh-huh. We get this little coda that is primarily about Giles singing at the yeah. coffee shop. Mm-hmm. It would have been better to cut it short here and then pick up much, much later when we've forgotten about it. Sure, sure. Yeah. And have mm-hmm. that, that story be related. Mm-hmm. I think that would have worked a little better, yeah. at least. Back at the frat house, the door to Riley's room is now a mess of vines. Inside the room, he and Buffy are clinging to each other. Giles catches up with the story so far, and Willow discovers that the Lowell fraternity house used to be a home for emotionally disturbed teenagers from the Sunnydale area. It's a wonder we didn't hear about this back in season one. Uh, yeah, really. If mm-hmm. ever there were a target for supernatural activity in exactly. Sunnydale, <laughs> surely this building of all buildings mm-hmm. would be that. The only lead they have is one Genevieve Holt, the former head of the home. One, she's still alive. Two, she's Mrs. Lanigan. <laughs> we talked at the top of the show yes. about Catherine Houston, mm-hmm. our enduring and abiding love for Catherine Houston in everything. Yes. This is such a waste. It absolutely is. Yeah. The Scoobies go to visit and Giles asks Genevieve Holt about supernatural occurrences in the house. She doesn't remember anything like that. Just a good old fashioned upbringing for the children in her care. 
those who were dirty were abused, and her influence in the house has now created a malevolent presence. Poltergeists, we learn, have overtaken the building, using Buffy and Riley as a source of energy to manifest themselves throughout the building. And when Buffy and Riley are done, they will die. Le petit mort will, in this instance, be followed by le actual mort. <laughs> okay, here's the thing. We have all of this weirdness, none of it connected, none of it making any sense. Nobody can figure out what it is. We go to this woman who talks about, you know, punishing the dirty ones and Giles then, you know, proceeds to waste a lot of time yelling at an old lady who's never going to see justice. So who the hell cares? Go out and save the lives of the people who are going to die. On top of which, all of a sudden, he has this one piece of the puzzle and he knows that <laughs> Buffy and Riley are a battery powering all okay. of this poltergeist activity that as soon as the battery is dead, they're going to die. I mean, it seems like a hell of a jump. It's a jump that's not completely uncommon in no, Buffy. Usually this, this is the kind part of, thing, of the episode where Giles figures out what's going on. Right, after they've done research, after there have been consistent clues that's that true. lead us towards something. This if, is simply If he a, had a book in front of him yes. instead of standing in a hallway. Yeah, sure. And he'd said, of course, Buffy and Riley are the batteries. Or, right, or something Then like, we would have bought it completely. Well, or it's if he'd said, execution. I think this reminds me of something, let yes. me go look it up, yeah. or something like that. It's just one of these things where he's like, okay, we're not even going to pretend that this makes any sense at all. I'm just going to tell you that they're going to die because I said they're going to die. It's a hell of a jump. And we're whistling past the fact that this is a story, apparently, without an inciting incident. But w- without a bad guy, right? Nothing this is has just something that happens. changed right. in the house. Like, Nothing has happened yeah. to trigger this. It just did. Right. What? And imagine if Genevieve Holt was actually the bad guy, that it was stopping her that was going to save the day, that she came in and saw, you know, Buffy and Riley smooching and going into the that Lowell house, maybe, not in my house or we something We maybe like make that. her face the consequences of her absolutely horrific actions? Yeah. Yeah, maybe. I mean, because Giles Imagine yelling at her... if we did something like that. <laughs> Giles yelling at her when people are going to die is not a thing, right? Well, okay, I don't want to downplay the severity of having Giles yell at you. No, having Giles... Yeah, if Giles yelled at me, I would be if totally If Giles was disappointed yeah. in me, I, I genuinely so don't know what I would do. <laughs> oh, my heart would break. But here's the whole thing. Like, we have this wonderful actress playing this role that could have been really interesting if she incited this, if it was her Absolutely. at the at the core of it. That could have been really, really interesting. We could have tightened up everything just like that, you know? Yeah. But instead, we've got all this weird stuff, and in the end, we get, you know, it's just a big bursting poltergasm from, uh, from <laughs> which, you know, as far as lines go, sure, it's, it's a it's very Xanderific. Yeah. Right. But are we supposed to infer from this that Buffy and Riley are the first couple to have sex in Lowell House? Well, Because yeah. I don't think I'd buy that. I don't think I'd buy because that either. Graham lives in Lowell House. Exactly. And you know Graham's getting some tail. I, I, if I know anything about Graham, <laughs> and I'm not sure that I do, but I'm pretty sure it would be that. Yes. <laughs> it just doesn't connect. It's a yeah. gesture. Thematically, it works Kind of. There's definitely something there. There's definitely something there to the idea that these children suffered under this mm-hmm. this awful and tyrannical oppression. Right. This this fundamental repudiation of their innate sexuality, mm-hmm. their self-awareness, their ability and, and desire to connect with other people around them. Sure. There's a really rich idea there. And I like the way that it's reflected in The Wall of a Thousand Orgasms, in The Spin the Bottle. There yeah. are elements there that that work that that could you that know could come to be fruition interesting but without an inciting incident to begin the story this is just a thing that happened right. and that's compounded in due course by the complete absence of a climax to the story because it doesn't <laughs> no end no pun intended no right? pun intended <laughs> <laughs> no but i mean it it does it doesn't have like a spine at the center of it it's just kind of all these things sort of happening at this time it is a series of events some of which are connected some to of which are connected <laughs> some <laughs> other <laughs> tara willow and giles perform a ritual to bind the poltergeists creating a window for xander and anya to rescue buffy and riley As the poltergeists manifest around them, the door to the frat house swings open, and Xander leads the way. Immediately prior to that, of course, we get what is perhaps my favorite line that Anya will ever have (laughs) in Buffy, where they're standing outside and she has her hand Mm -hmm. pressed against the door, and Xander says, what do you feel? And Anya, without a beat, says, sad, afraid of being without you, and a little hungry. (laughs) 
then Xander says, I mean about the house. And she says, oh, still haunted. Still haunted. (laughs) That's beautiful. Well, I like it, too, because it combines this lovely vulnerability that Anya has in Mm. those moments when it's about how much she loves Xander, not about this, like, weird neediness that we see from her and this desperation, you know. Um, But it's also this literal reading of he's asking her how she feels. She's a little hungry. Like, this is something that gives... And layers to her, yeah. Literalism and blindness to that kind of social convention. Sure. An ability to to cut through to the heart of the matter. Mm-hmm. Those are Anya's greatest strengths yeah. in terms of her characterization. Sure. I wish we saw more of that. Yeah. Rather well, I also than, like it, it comes along with her her hand on the thing. She can tell. Mm-hmm. She has a sensitivity. She's still plugged into this supernatural space. I love that. Which makes her more useful and Absolutely. vital just as a part of mm-hmm. the Scooby gang, too. Yeah. Inside, the entire staircase is now consumed by vines, but Xander luckily brought a machete. Mm -hmm. A cold wind blows as Xander tries to open the bedroom door, and back with Willow, Tara, and Giles, the table is thrown violently across the room. Back in the frat house, Xander is dragged into the bathroom for baptism, and Anya is hurled downstairs in what is a really impressive stunt. Sure. When you introduce the balcony railing... Mm -hmm. As conspicuously as you introduced the balcony railing in this episode, you fully expect someone to be thrown over it. I did not expect it to be on you. Oh, yeah. Well, no, it's it's Chekhov's railing. You know something's going to happen there. Yeah. <laughs> the tale is old as time. It's, it's a really great stunt. Yeah. And mm-hmm. Anya picking herself up. Yeah. This is more Anya that I really like. Yeah. Picking herself She's up, tough. muttering under her breath. Running and right to back the staircase, in. Yeah. Doing the thing. Mm-hmm. It's great to see her with that amount of agency. Unfortunately, this is the last satisfying moment that you're going to get in this entire episode because Anya gets to her feet and climbs the stairs, shaking off a vine that pierces her palm to rescue Xander from the tub. Outside, they manage to push through the horticultural attack to finally open the door to Riley's room, which they do for no real reason. Suddenly, Riley and Buffy are returned to the normal world. The vines vanish, and you feel like you missed something, don't you? Mm Mm-hmm. Like the end of a story. Sure. You feel like you maybe missed something happening. Right. We just open a door and suddenly the spell is broken and that's it. But there's nobody who's vanquished. There's nobody who has has been thwarted. There's nothing. Looked at the clock. And, and said, just oh, said 43 okay. and a half minutes. Okay, it works this time. Well, yeah, exactly. When they said 38 and a half minutes, let's just have Giles yeah. know they're going to die. You know, um, it is one of these things that just is is underused it feels like you know bread that's underbaked it's yeah. just gooey in the center and none of it's really good and you're ultimately left with a story with no beginning yeah. and a story with no end yeah. and while some of the work along the way can be engaging there can are be diverting, moments can be fun sure there's just nothing here yeah this is a story of a thing that started happening for no reason and then stopped happening for, for no, no reason, reason exactly <laughs> It's a level of nihilism that we don't usually expect from Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Mm -hmm. The next day, the Scoobies discuss all that has happened, particularly Giles' singing. Buffy and Riley, though, aren't really to blame for what happened. And what they went through? Wow, that must have been horrible. Ah, sure. Yeah. (laughs) So overall, there are things I like. There are moments that I enjoy in this episode. I think there are great lines from Spike, great lines from Xander, Mm -hmm. great lines from Anya. I actually rather like the way that Buffy is, without a great deal of pomp and circumstance, Mm -hmm. sidelined throughout the episode. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Which creates at least the possibility, I don't think this possibility is ever ever realized, mm-hmm. but it creates the possibility of some interesting interactions with the Scoobies. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Catherine Houston is fun to see on screen. It's always fun to see her, but she's wasted. Just really yeah. wasted. Yeah. And you're right, there is no spine to this story at all. This is something that right. we haven't seen before from <laughs> Buffy the Vampire Slayer, because even the episodes that we've hated yeah. have had a story. Have had at least something going on. The thing is, too, it's such a wasted opportunity, because here we have three couples at varying stages in their relationship. We have Anya and Xander, who are going through something of a dry spell, I guess, which is a normal stage <laughs> the in end a relationship. Of the, honeymoon period, the end of the honeymoon least. period, moving into a deeper space. We could be sure. talking about that. We have Riley and Buffy, who are in that very fun sex-all-the-time kind of stage 
stage at the beginning. And then we have Tara and Willow who are still sort of tentatively moving into that space. You know, they're about to, to hit figure the out. really exactly. fun sex all the time. They're about to. Yeah, they are. <laughs> um, so, I mean, you look at that and you think we have these three relationships. We have these three core couples that are at different stages in their relationship. We could be using that as some kind of structural thing. Again, you take, you know, Genevieve Holt and you make her the bad guy. You make her the inciting person on this, the antagonist, and give us something to fight against. And then when we overcome her, we get a chance to talk about this. I mean, one of the things that is nice that you and I had talked about a little bit earlier um, before we started recording was the idea that this is a sex positive episode, sure. that we have a theme where people aren't being, you know, uh, shamed for having sex, that sex in and of itself, when people are being shamed for it, you know, with Genevieve Holt, when she is tormenting these poor kids, that she's wrong and it's clearly wrong mm -hmm. and it's a bad thing to do that to somebody even you know? the kind of febrile yes. teenage sexual mm -hmm. fumblings you know this exactly. kind of inelegant and almost inarticulate kind of sexual expression mm -hmm. even that is celebrated there's a very positive take on that which i found you know refreshingly progressive honestly which is really and nice we're joking a little mm -hmm. bit about yes isn't it cute that the game of spin the bottle is like strictly heterosexual mm -hmm. yeah mm -hmm. and there's only a moment of connection between willow and tara mm -hmm. and we just leave past that completely mm -hmm. and yes that's absolutely fair it was the year 2000 it was network television Which this is, so is not the story where you do exactly you know, we don't need to address that right now it's just sexuality in general it and would that's have been totally good if we fine. had but yeah. but to be positive about sexuality in general i think is a yeah. very good message to send i think that that's great and but, to yeah. be simultaneously absolutely condemnatory mm -hmm. of this anti-sex exactly well know. make her the bad guy make yeah. her the thing that we have to vanquish rather than just stopping riley and buffy from having a good time i say go for it guys have a great time yeah we also get in this episode very very peripherally but mm -hmm. rather engagingly giles's continuing search for self yes his continuing desire it's a to nice little moment explore his identity to mm -hmm. understand who he is and I rather like that. I rather like that it's, again, off in the periphery. Yeah. But it's also completely consistent with what we've seen of Giles through the season as a whole. Sure. Mm -hmm. And it's not middle life crisis-y. Yeah. It's something more, more adult and more mature. And it's just, frankly, nice that he's having experiences that are completely disconnected from Buffy and the others. Absolutely. And in the beginning, I'm doing something at the espresso pump with grownups. It's a grown-up thing. You wouldn't be interested. Like, I like that moment where he's like, I have some of my life to myself. I'd like to have that. And the yeah. Scoobies are accepting of that. Sure. They don't yeah. think, oh, well, we have to go along and find out what exactly. it is. Or, ooh, mm -hmm. it's weird that he's doing an adult grown-up thing. Right. Mm -hmm. It's it's nice. It's respectful toward mm -hmm. Giles in a way that the show hasn't always in this season been entirely respectful toward Giles. Sure, yeah. Because too often he gets turned into feral demons. And yes. Of that ilk. <laughs> so there are good things about this episode. Mm -hmm. It is not a complete disaster, but we kind of have to talk about the central idea, mm -hmm. which is Buffy and Riley. Yep. To what degree, and perhaps this is begging the question, but to what degree is this episode hampered by the complete absence of sexual chemistry between, between these Sarah two Michelle Geller and yeah. Mark Yeah, well, I think that that's a big problem with Buffy and Riley in general is that it is very much an informed relationship. Mm. There doesn't seem to be a whole lot of natural chemistry happening. And also know. the relationship, I kind of buy. Mm -hmm. I kind of buy that if you, if Riley was really, you know, yeah. someone you knew, mm -hmm. I could see a relationship being something Riley's okay <laughs> but that kind of heated sexual chemistry yeah yeah no Riley's a great on paper guy and everybody's had this relationship at one point or another and when I say guy I'm just being you know like my experience but everybody's got either the great on paper guy or the great on paper girl which is the person that you look at and you think I should absolutely want to be with this person they have ticked off all of these qualities that I look for in a relationship. It's absolutely the perfect person for me. And you date that person and it goes horribly, horribly wrong because there's absolutely no chemistry there. Um, and I don't know, maybe I'm the only person who's done that. I highly doubt that, but I have a couple of those in my, you know, scarred romantic past. So <laughs> I feel like that's the sense that I get from Riley and Buffy. Like I believe the relationship. I believe that this is the kind of thing that Buffy would say, this is what I need. This is what will be good for me. Look at him. He's such sure. a stand-up guy. He's Captain America. Um, but, yeah, when it comes right down to it, you don't see 
the heat with these two. You don't see that kind of passion um, between them. And um, I, I don't know. I mean, I feel like it's it's hard to believe it unless, of course, they're under some kind of, you know, weird mystical spell. Um, but even yeah. being under some kind of weird mystical spell, there's no heat. I ju- there's, there's just no heat yeah. there. And that's not the problem with the episode. No, <laughs> the it's episode one would of, still fail yeah. even mm-hmm. if they had all that sexual chemistry. But it is certainly perhaps the most conspicuous problem with the episode. Because when we're supposed to buy that Buffy and Riley are having this amazing, intense, acrobatic sexual experience. Yes. It's it's difficult to connect with that or to even give that space in the story mm-hmm. when they seem so bland together. Yeah. So, yeah, so really tepid. Mm-hmm. It's... It's a difficult problem. Yeah. Because what do you do? The only way to make that work is to throw out the entire story. Uh, Well, you know, which might not have been a bad choice. Which might not have been a bad choice. (laughs) Certainly it would have been a story that you could do with Anya and Xander, for example. But Maybe. I don't know. I think that there are... This story has so much potential and could have been done so much better if it had just sort of understood how stories work um and i feel like that's something very fundamental vague understanding of how stories work um i think that there are a lot of elements here which did not come together to form a whole sure you know and there are little parts the anya and spike stuff is really really great um there are little parts and little bits that that are really nice Mm -hmm. um but overall as a story it does not cohere it is competently made. Mm-hmm. There are great interactions. There are great scenes. There are entire sequences. Really, the entire first act, mm-hmm. I think, is is solid enough. Yeah. I respond, I think, a little more favorably than you do mm-hmm. to some of the horror elements, to some of that disconcerting, unsettling yeah, world generally building, the tonal stuff mm-hmm. that's established through the first act. But it really doesn't come yeah. together. You're absolutely right. Let's put it on the list, the big list of every Buffy episode ever. And of course, our immediate point of comparison, the episode that we feel compelled to discuss, perhaps in this regard, is Fear Itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Fear Itself, another season four story. Kind of a similar thing. Another story in which there are shenanigans afoot. In, in a frat house. <laughs> in a frat house. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Does this fare for you better or worse than Fear Itself, which is currently number 50 on Yes, our list. 50 out of a total of 68. Um, I kind of feel like it's worse than Fear Itself. As listeners to the show will know by now, I generally respond to and give credit for ambition. Yes. And I think that I'm going to be guilty of that in this regard. Mm -hmm. I think that Where the Wild Things Are has potential. Mm -hmm. And I think that at the broadest level, if you you zoom all the way back out and you get the one-line description of what this episode is... I think there's something there. I think you could do something with this Mm -hmm. that you can't really do with fear itself. Yeah. That said, the execution really cost it. I think I would watch this episode before I would watch Fear Itself. I think I would put it a little higher on the list, but certainly, certainly not much higher. Well, where would you put it? Well, directly above Fear Itself is Welcome to the Hellmouth and The Harvest, the Mm -hmm. pilot and second episode of Buffy, and I kind of feel like it can't go above that. Yeah, so you would put it at at 50, and I would put it at 51 then, Oh, so you're looking at right under Fear Itself. I'm looking at, like, right under Fear Itself, Right above Gingerbread, so you're absolutely confident saying that Where the Wild Things Are is better than Gingerbread. Am I absolutely confident in that? Not really. <laughs> well, I'm wondering where the the bottom where threshold is. Where is the here. bottom for this? Where, where is it unequivocally better than the episode below it? Oh God! I kind of feel you have to go down a long way before you find an episode that is just unambiguously worse. I would say maybe Bad Eggs. I'm no, not some sure. assembly required is pretty bad too. No, that's true. They're pretty bad. The pack for the longest time was our metric. That yeah, was the dividing line. Was between the dividing line between good something? And really there's something good. there, and there's nothing there. Yeah, but so, at least those have a structure. At least those have a bad guy. At least those have like, you know, a story happening. <laughs> so I don't know. I mean, it, you know, if we're looking at, you know, where does it get to the point where things really fall apart? I would say you're in teacher's pet territory. I, I think, robot I you, think Jane. Maybe Ted. there is a whole nother tier underneath bad that is just offensive. I think that there comes a point <laughs> where you go out of bad and, into... and enter the realm of, no, no, this is actually an antagonistic episode All of right, television. So, but you would put it, like, I had it kind of instinctively in the fear itself gingerbread neighborhood. You want to put it a little bit higher than that. 
right? I, I would say that it's better than Fear Itself, but definitely comparable. Definitely comparable to Fear Itself, to Gingerbread. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Also arguably comparable to, to some of the episodes lower down. Yeah. But to me, it feels like it belongs there, though I'm giving it credit for for, for ambition, potential, which is, for which ambition. Which is, is fine. There is potential there. There are some good moments. I mean, I'm honestly, let's put it at 51, just under Fear Itself. I'll take that. No, I, th- <laughs> I think just, that's fine. Just above gingerbread, but in all honesty. I think that's know. a generous place on the list. I think honestly. it is a fairly generous place. There is a lot of potential there. There are some interesting themes going on. There's some good scene level work happening in some of these spaces. You know, I some think you can give it a little credit. There's it's some good performances. It's competently directed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there are things to like, even though the, the core is <laughs> yeah. kind of abhorrent where it isn't absent entirely. It's not hateful. It, I don't hate it. At the end of it, I'm not like, oh my God, this no, is the worst no episode ever. it's no fish, beer bad. It doesn't make me angry. Ted. Yes. No, mm-hmm. You're at the, at the right. loss of that 45 minutes from my life. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that said, we may not be in a hurry to watch this one <laughs> No, not again. again. All right. So it goes in at 51 on the list between Fear Itself and gingerbread. Mm-hmm. It's a weird part of the list. There you go. It's bad, but not unambiguously bad. It's a bad neighborhood, but it's okay to be the best house in that neighborhood, right? Sure. <laughs> I think that's how ordered lists work, right? Sure. <laughs> that is it then for this episode of Dusted. We'll be back on Thursday with the return of Oz to Sunnydale in our second Buffy the Vampire Slayer episode of the week, New Moon Rising. Then next Monday, we will have our only Dusted episode, the double-length two-part episode, Five by Five and Sanctuary and the arrival in Los Angeles. Angeles of faith. I cannot wait to talk oh, about that. Oh, that is a high point of season one, I gotta say. We'll get right to it. On Thursday, though, New Moon Rising. We'll be back then with more. Until then, I'm Alistair Stevens. And I'm Lonnie Dianrich, and this is Dusted. Grr. 